0: Hello and welcome to Renegade Paradise, the official podcast of the Charleston, South Carolina chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. We're an intersectional activist organization working to build a society and economy run by the working class, a society that democratically meets the needs of the many rather than creating profits for the few. Renegade Paradise is a news, commentary, and educational platform based on socialist analysis from activists on the ground here in the Lowcountry. By sharing a socialist perspective, and by lifting up the voices of our allies and comrades, we hope to create space for folks in this part of the country looking to deepen their understanding of leftist politics, but who might not know exactly where to start. Members of the Charleston Democratic Socialists of America come from a broad, diverse set of backgrounds and tendencies within the spectrum of the working class left. What unites us is one common goal, to build a different world, a better world. I'm CJ Bones, and tonight we're going to be talking about a topic that has seen a lot of attention in the press lately, the abolition of police, prisons, and the carceral state. The murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police officers Derek Chauvin, To Thao, James Kyung, and Thomas Lane on May 25th was a spark, and that spark landed on a long, simmering fire of righteous fury. The resulting fire ignited a series of protests and direct actions in places all around the country, from big marches in big cities to small vigils in rural communities. Charleston also saw its fair share of protests, as we covered in a couple of previous episodes several weeks ago. And at one point, thousands of protesters actually occupied several blocks downtown, hoisting a Black Lives Matter banner in front of the city market. After generations of protests, local black activists helped to secure the removal of the John C. Calhoun statue from Marion Square. Still, the fight to fully address and progress from Charleston's racist past continues. Today, our activism continues to move from the street and into more long-term community organizing. Uh, It's moving into having honest, challenging conversations with ourselves and our friends and our neighbors, and family in order to build a mass movement that will tackle racial capitalism and all systems of oppression head on. So one topic of discussion I've noticed that uh, has come up a lot in the mainstream national media and amongst various DSA chapters is the question of prison and police abolition. What is abolition? What does abolition look like on the local level? How does carceral culture work its way into our public spaces and institutions? What do safe communities look like? How do we build a just society outside of the punitive model that has seen more people imprisoned than anywhere else in the entire world? And all of these questions bring up some important facts. Uh, Number one. The violence of prisons and police are as American as apple pie, having been a part of this country since the early 1700s during the formation of slave patrols in South Carolina. Uh, Number two. Police have had a long history of engaging in and breaking up uh, union organizing, often through violent massacres. Check out our previous episode on South Carolina textile mill strikes in the early 20th century for details. Number three. African Americans bear a disproportionate amount of police violence and incarceration rates. They're also often more harshly sentenced for committing the same or similar crimes as their white counterparts, according to several studies on incarceration rates and prison demographics. Number four, police don't exist to protect people. Uh, They exist to protect private property and to enforce the whims of the ruling class. They exist as the point of contact between the repressive state apparatus and the worker, who often have contradictory aims. We're seeing this firsthand as Donald Trump and the DHS have deployed federal secret police uh, to cities around the country in full military attire, sans identifying name tags, of course, violently attacking protesters exercising their constitutional rights. Number 5. Reinforcing the fact that police do not ensure public safety— Only about half of all violent crimes and a third of the property crimes that occur in the United States each year are reported to police. Many crimes go unreported due to the additional harms that calling the police has historically inflicted on vulnerable communities, such as undocumented folks, victims of domestic violence, etc. Number six, tough on crime laws won't protect us. Studies have shown that increases in incarceration rates have an insubstantial impact on crime rates and may actually increase crime in some instances. Over and over again, we've seen the human and financial cost of having a militarized police force whose sole purpose is to wage war on its citizens. Charleston DSA believes that it's not only time to think beyond the carceral state, but dismantle it completely. And that means replacing prisons with systems of rehabilitation that don't place a focus on punishment and government institutionalization. That means focusing on non-reformist reforms that lessen police power and budget. That means creating programs like Medicare for All and ensuring that anyone who needs mental health services can get them. In short, it means full abolition and building a just and humane system based on the principles of investing in our communities and fully understanding the power of transformative justice. For decades, from Maryam Kaba to Angela Davis— Black women have been leading the abolition movement. Our own local activists, who you'll hear from in this podcast, have been dedicated to this type of work for years. And uh, to this end, Charleston DSA's abolition working group has also seen a lot of activity lately. We recently concluded a multi-part Abolition 101 online workshop and are continuing to seek ways in which we can increase our effectiveness in this arena and build a broad coalition with local activists. We cannot and should not do this work alone. On that front, we've also been reaching out to like-minded folks who specialize in this sort of liberatory work and learning from them. So this episode will feature our comrade Marilyn uh, from the Charleston chapter speaking with local activists Candace Livingston, Julie Che, and Empress. Through Carolina Youth Action Project, they've been working on a campaign called Safer Schools Without SROs, which demands the removal of all SROs in Charleston County, and in every public school across South Carolina. CYAP demands sex education beyond the abstinence-only curriculum that we have been provided and believes that we should receive sex education courses that are engaging and affirm queer and trans identities and discuss consent, healthy relationships, anatomy, barriers and contraception, body positivity, sustainable hygiene products, pleasure, and abortion. CYAP's work is crucial towards building the kind of safe community abolitionists envision. Candace is from Georgetown, South Carolina. She just completed her second year of teaching 7th grade scholars world history at C.E. Williams Middle School in Charleston, South Carolina. The course she taught had three core values that included critical awareness, equity, and dialogue. Candace has also worked with organizations like the Exodus Foundation, the NAACP, Black Lives Matter, Hashtag Protect SC Prisoners, and the Carolina Youth Action Project. She graduated from Winthrop University in 2017 with a BA in Political Science and will be entering the Educational Policy, Organization, and Leadership PhD program at the University of Illinois in the fall. She's currently doing research on carceral approaches in Chicago's K-12 schools, the neoliberal education reform that sustains them, and the abolitionist pedagogies for the University of Illinois Summer Predoctoral Institute. Julie is a chiochuk Khmer virgo cyborg media artist and budding plant worker from the South. She is currently the campaign organizer at the Carolina Youth Action Project, guiding the strategy of two-girl, trans-youth, and gender-nonconforming youth center campaigns, safer for Schools Without SROs, and Sex Education Beyond Abstinence. Empress is a passionate abolitionist youth leader who has been working with Carolina Youth Action Project for over three years. She has been involved in CYAP's Youth Action Alliance and Youth Leader Institute. IMPRIS is also involved with the Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute and the Youngest Bold Alumni. This discussion will cover a wide variety of topics, including information about supporting the Carolina Youth Action Project, the problems with the 8 Can't Wait Plan, what practicing transformative justice locally looks like, and how we can all lend our strength and support to incarcerated people. There's a phrase that's been floating around for a while that says strong communities make police obsolete, and I think that aligns with our mission here in DSA really well. When you break it down, that's what this is all about. We hope that the discussion tonight will help you strengthen your own community, whether you're listening from somewhere here in the swamp or across the country. So I'm going to turn over the mic to Marilyn now. This is CJ Bones, and you're listening to Renegade Paradise.
1: I'm Marilyn, I'm a Charleston DSA member and an abolitionist.
2: I'm Empress, I'm a Virgo, I work with Carolina Youth Action Project and I'm also an abolitionist.
3: <laughs> I'm Julie, I work with SEAP as well. I'm also a Virgo and also an abolitionist.
4: <laughs> I'm Candace, um, former teacher now student PIC abolitionist Gemini and what was he up to in an unofficial capacity.
1: All right I'm really excited to talk to y'all. Um, so our first question is what does abolition mean to you and how did you come to be an abolitionist?
3: Um. I can't remember, someone chime in if they remember who who said it, but um, somebody uh, mentioned, and this, this quote goes around a lot, that abolition is um, presence and not absence, and so um, it's a struggle, like, it's a struggle to fight back against um, what we always think about, well, not what we always think about, but, like, how we you know, are pretty programmed to be in a scarcity mindset for the most part, to think in an individualist mindset for the most part. And then for me, as a first-generation American, um, trying to understand what presence means when um, a lot of what uh, my family is accustomed to is scarcity. So, um, yeah, it's honestly... um, surreal and becoming an abolitionist was a really like rocky process for me um i understood i began to understand that like the ways that i was like navigating the world were um were where my politics didn't necessarily align with um how i actually embodied politics because um i believed that i was farther left than i actually was acting in Um, and a lot of this was seen in the ways that i was making art um a couple of years ago where a lot of my focus was on making art for other people making art to sell monetizing myself monetizing my brand doing this that the other and it was all about um me and trying to make it big as big as i could in a community and i was like yeah 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 i'm all about community whatever um and so that subconsciously started to equate my personal value to selling art to where i couldn't i couldn't necessarily Figure out um, why my my internal value went down in my brain, and uh, I, you know, once I started learning about um, abolition and um, the ways that capitalism kind of like sets sets a sets the price on your on individuals based on how much they can produce. Um, I started to dismantle a lot of the like blockages I felt, a lot of the reasons for making art. and then beyond that, you know, um, thinking through like how have I contributed to anti-blackness, anti-indigeneity throughout my creation processes because of the ways that um, I, as an artist was just moving through moving through the artwork in an exploitive way. and in in a lot of instances, the art world does move in a lot of anti-black um oppressive ways because the conversation around um around like breaking breaking capitalism within the art space uh, isn't necessarily like is it isn't a conversation that keeps going because um it seems very like sectioned off between creatives I mean among not between creatives but like where uh between it's like there's like a siloed conversation about art and then there's a silo conversation about like creation under capitalism and the intersections are starting to happen more and more in spaces that I've been in um but I still think that that conversation is not happening enough in um the greater scheme of the art world so um yeah long story short I joined up because I saw an organization that was trying to uh Bridge that gap, and they were talking about prison abolition through art. And I thought it was so dope that I went to this um, this uh, open mic, and there was a young person uh, doing slam poetry about asexuality. And I thought that was so dope. Like I was like, I have never. First of all, the poem was beautiful, and then I also didn't know that much about asexuality. I wasn't around folks who would talk about that kind of stuff, and then I just had this like itch to continue moving forward. I was like, I need to like join this org somehow. And I kept pushing, kept pushing. And then, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't really get a foot in because my school schedule didn't work out. And um, in the fall of 2018, I was able to be a co-facilitator for um, CFC's Action Alliance. Uh, And that's when I was able to access a lot of resources to to actually learn and take a deep dive into abolition, take a deep dive into dismantling a lot of the very liberal uh things that I was fed in academia and um, you know doing all that really tough, painful work and um, learning all the beautiful new stuff while being supported by amazing community, amazing young people, so <laughs> that's that's where I am.
2: That was beautiful. I
3: was <laughs> say, come on, beautiful community,
2: right? young people. Come on, Jew. That was um, so dope. I can't believe you found abolitionist values through artwork. I never thought about it like that.
4: That's beautiful. Um, ooh, you going uh, Candace? <laughs> see? All right, I got you. I'll go, I will go ahead. Um, then I'll try not to go on several, several tangents. All right, so. At uh, the most basic level, you know, abolition for me is um, creating a new world where we don't have imprisonment, we don't have police, we don't have policing, we don't have things that come along with those things, right? Like the surveillance and not just the ones that come from the police state, but the ones that are in all of these different settings that we're in. So, like what you were talking about in the art world, like who would think, um, or you know, several people would, but you know, at a basic level, who would think that there's that much, like you know, policing and gatekeeping in the art world until you dive into it. And then also you get into school settings and the policing that is there and the surveillance that's there and the violence that's there. And then in the home, when it comes to like gender violence. So all of that um, for me. Um, is included when we talk about abolition and it just means, you know, like Ruth Wilson Gilmore, the great, the Ruth Wilson Gilmore says, you know, like changing everything, changing everything. So that's what it means to me. Um, and it's it's personal, but it's it's political. It's, it's talking about like several different groups of people. It's not just looking at the group of people that are you know most closely um, impacted by policing and surveillance, like folks who are in prison, but you know, everyone who's impacted um, outside of prisons as well. Um, and I'll stop right there before I keep going. But how I became an abolitionist, So how did I come to being an abolitionist or PIC abolitionist? First of all, it took me a very long time to even identify. As uh, an abolitionist, not because I didn't embrace um, the principles of ideology and all of those things, but I just didn't think I could ever have enough knowledge um, to have the title because, you know, when we see titles or see people with titles, um, we tend to place them on this like invisible pedest- pedestal without even knowing it. Um, so yeah, it took me a minute, but I've always been very, (laughs) uh, outspoken in regards to, uh, seeing people being like treated unfairly or seeing injustice or, um, having injustice acted out upon me. Um, so I've always been like pretty, like, I can't even remember elementary school before even really knowing what the word racism meant. I was calling my second grade teacher racist because I knew that people were being treated differently in our classroom and I felt it. So um, I guess it would be growing up alongside um, friends who got caught up in those systems uh, and I and being able to see how they were policed in schools uh, and outside of schools and how they were a part of the conversation when they weren't even in the room in a negative way. So teachers talking about certain students in negative ways and things of that nature, but growing up alongside and literally seeing someone who was just, super sweet absolutely just amazing uh smart and intelligent all of all of the wonderful adjectives uh but because they were uh in a certain family or in a certain part of the the city they were put into this group and being classified as just not not uh worthy um so saw them be placed in the system when we were in middle school. So being sent to juvenile detention, getting out of juvenile detention, but being surveilled um, once they were out and having the police just always around their home, just waiting for something to happen. And then they got placed back into detention. Uh, So it was to the point where they were there and they were gonna be there for a prolonged period of time. And they ended up, or he ended up, uh, having his life taken while he was in the institution so before his life was taken he uh he uh kind of guided me uh, on the road to abolition before I had the language for it so give me like different readings political readings radical readings when I was in high school and then when I was really able to become or be a yeah become a part of the movement uh like my freshman year of college a lot of Uh, organizers and activists and scholars call us like the Trayvon Martin generation. Uh, So being involved in movements like that. And then I ended up working for uh, an organization that I didn't even know was an abolitionist organization. Um, I didn't put two and two together. I just knew I wanted to help folks who were coming out of prison and ensure that they didn't get placed back into prison. Um, So I was working with the Exodus Foundation in Charlotte when I, graduated in that was 2017 so yeah I think between 2017 and 2018 is when I really call myself an abolitionist or so but I didn't call myself when I allowed until like last year but that's that and that was a lot so my bad but it was beautiful
5: <laughs>
2: oh okay well For me, abolition um, just means completely redefining a new world um, where I feel like everyone's uh, identities are not just valued, but they're acknowledged and they're protected. Uh, Abolition looks like mm, having my blackness flourish, my queerness flourish without fear of harm or punishment. Yeah, that's what I feel like abolition to me looks like. Um, And I don't really have like a set (laughs) like day or moment that was like, yes, I am an abolitionist because I kind of like fell into it accidentally. (laughs) My mom actually was like, there's this dope org called Caroline's Action Project Eh." they're doing this first year, um, like mini cohort, you think that I think you should most definitely go and um, try to interview, put an application for it. And I'm like, okay, sure. Like, cool, great, whatever, that's fine. Um, and I remember on the interview, the questions were all centered, like thinking back to it, the questions were all centered around abolitionist views, but like, I didn't know that. Like. Uh, I was getting questions asked like how do you feel about police presence in the world and you know I was like police we need them they're needed of course like you don't want to just you know have somebody dangerous walking on the street um thinking back to it I have grown a lot <laughs> but um thankful for Ariel shout out to Ariel who <laughs> conducted that interview and allowed me to be a part of y'all and it's like the more knowledge that I was given um through SIAP and through YAW, um, it was just like, dang, um, I feel like we really need to get rid of the criminal justice system. But I still didn't know, like, that is borderline being an abolitionist. Um, But I feel like I went to New Orleans um, on a trip with SIAP. And we went to this super dope place where um This lady had a garden that built the boxes um, the same size as isolation cells in um, prison, and would send letters to some of the prisoners that were kept in um, these isolation cells and uh, they would write back what flowers they wanted to have planted in the box. And kind of similar to what Julie was saying with like the art translating through abolitionist work, I feel like that's when I kind of saw like a correlation between I'm working with this super dope org that has abolitionist in their, uh, in like their bio and their mission statement. And I feel like I just was like, okay, we need to, I think it's time for me to start thinking of a world beyond the narratives that are pushed out now and um yeah I just feel like that's when I was like okay okay I think I'm an abolitionist um but um kind of like what Candice said I didn't like like I didn't uh, make it known that that was part of my identity up until like this year because I just have felt so powered with everything that's going on and I felt like me being abolitionist was so like valued in recent times. and I just felt like, okay, like, and I might as well just make it known. I am an abolitionist <laughs> and um, it's starting. Cause that beforehand it used to feel like a very like hush, 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 hush word for me because every time that word was brought up, there were so many questions that followed it that made it seem like abolition wasn't possible. And I hated questions. Like I wanted to stay away from them as much as I could. So just talking about my work, I never said anything about it, but I'm starting to normalize my work a lot more and owning it. Um, and so, yeah, I think, so yeah, I think that's when I started, you know, taking on the term, I am an abolitionist. and. It's honestly like the biggest part of my, myself. <laughs> my organizing and abolitionist work is like a core of my identity. So yeah. Yes, you better
4: say it out loud. And loud. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe uh, um, think back to Fred Hansen. I used to be like, I am a revolutionary.
2: <laughs> <I'm an abolitionist. laughs>
1: yeah, that was so good. Um, So I wanna talk more about the work all of you do that supports abolition. Um, So I have two questions for Jolie and Empress. Um, And the first one is, how did Safer Schools Without SROs campaign get started? And what were some of the things you all were witnessing as students that made you want to start this campaign?
2: Oh, I was muted. Um, so we started thinking about um ideas we wanted to have for our campaign um during the first Youth Action Alliance year. And one of our leaders, Ariel, sat us all down and kind of told us, okay, so we're gonna be leading and organizing two campaigns. So what are some ideas that you guys think uh you wanna talk about? And we just kind of spewed out like all these different ideas, all these things that we thought mattered and directly affected youth um, and people of color and girls, trans youth and gender not conforming youth. We kept that in mind. And I mean, it was a long list. It was a really tedious process because we had like 20 plus campaign ideas up on the board um, coming from like like 10 to 12 people like (laughs) thinking, um, well, I want this to be our campaign and other folks were like, yeah, but how about we do this campaign? And so we had like so many meetings back to back to back and kind of voted on things that we saw were important but not urgent and things that we, that we saw important and urgent. And I feel like that process really kind of helped us um, identify the things that we wanted to start working on now um So, we narrowed it down to about three topics. I don't remember the third one, <laughs> but uh the two that we're actually working on now. So, spoiler alert, we chose these two <laughs> um, Safe for Schools Without SROs and Sex Education Beyond Abstinence. We all did like a, a fist of five and put up how we felt about each campaign topic, and those two won. And so, yeah, that's pretty much how we came. I mean, it sounds like it was like simple, like explaining it, but the process was so, so, so long and it got really frustrating because it was really hard to like sit here and have these super important topics and say, well, this is important, but it's not urgent right now. And so, I mean, yeah, that was, that's how we actually came up with them. In my head, that was actually like a great, great way to come up with <laughs> campaigns, but yeah.
3: Oh, there's two happened, questions. That happened like two years ago, right, Empress? Yeah, that so happened they, a long time ago. Work. That was
2: like my first year of YAH, too. That was the first year of YAH. <laughs> oh, there's another question. What were some of the things you were witnessing? Do you want to start this? Um, I feel like we also, I think I said this earlier, uh, we kept in mind the folks that were a part of CF. What is that noise in the back? It's like... Can y'all hear, do y'all hear like, like a beat? <laughs> I don't know where that's coming from. I'm so sorry, but, oh man, it's so distracting. But I feel like we kept in mind uh, the folks that were a part of CIAP, and that includes girls, trans youth and gender non-confirming youth. Um, and uh, we wanted to really make sure that whatever campaign we chose that those identities and those people were the forefront of this, this sort of liberation. And um, because a lot of times those are the identities that are pushed away. Um, so I feel like that's how we kind of came to the conclusion that those were the two that we wanted to do because those were the two campaigns where our identities were directly being attacked. That's
1: awesome. And I want to note that um, we will have a link to y'all's petition in the show notes, and everyone listening should go sign it if they haven't. Um, So, how would you say that Carolina Youth Action Project is uniquely positioned to fight for cops to be removed from schools? How is this campaign part of the larger conversation around abolition?
3: Um so I do want to make a note that this is my um I I am not new new to Seattle but I have been here for maybe like almost 2 years so Empress is the Empress is the OG here. Um so oh, I do yeah. want to always <laughs> defer to Empress for, for a lot of these answers but um some things that um I feel that make us pretty uniquely positioned to fight is that um, we already have a campaign platform in place. Like what Empress said, um, they did the work and they had like see, the Youth Leader Institute, which was um, formed from the first year of Youth Action Alliance, um, had been doing the work since then to figure out how to build a base um, after making explicit demands for um, the removal of SROs and what they wanna see in place. and um the demands around uh sex ed beyond abstinence so those solutions are centered around transformative justice practices within the schools and are like i said are specifically named there um in addition to not they're not really being an org that's leading efforts by the people who are being affected the most around charleston um cuz like especially in south carolina with our we have like such a rich organizing history like we like to shout out Septima McClark and Ella Baker, um, where Ella teaches us the importance of centering women and young people and movement work. And we organize through our relationships um, in CAP. We really, really, really want to ground our practice in our relationships so that it's not this like one-off we are using people for our benefit and then it's gone. Um, and um, we want to make sure that uh, we continue to build and sustain Sustain our work through those relationships because, um, you know, that's what that's what abolition is. We we it's we're it's interconnectedness, interde- interdependence, and emergent strategy stuff. So um, also shout out Septima Clark uh, because she teaches us that education is also a vital tool for action and uplifts the importance of broad strategy planning for the South by the South. So within CIAP, um the Youth Action Alliance is grounded in political education. And our political education is rooted in popular education by using the experiences of the people in the room to um, to you know make make information um, more accessible and make it like you know you you bring it back and um, so we make sure we we make sure that all our folks are like we're like we we know what's going on we know the political landscape and political climate and we bring our experiences to the table so that. It's not really a hierarchical where the teacher, you're the student kind of dynamic, but um, everyone, it's a shared learning space where there's a collective learning, collective um, push towards uh, transforming one another. Um, yeah, like like I said, we're doing the political education work and sometimes it, it, it looks a lot slower than other orgs might because we want to make sure that um, we move at the speed of trust through our relationships and move at the speed of like, Fully understanding enough to embody the steps that we're going to take, and fully, fully aligning with um, who who we say we are, um, and we seek to organize among other young people in the South by centering the political education there. Um, so every step of the way, it's it's like prioritizing young people in the front, whereas like we feel like um, we've we've just seen a lot of organizations work for young people that are completely led by adults or white people or cis people or all of the above um, and um, wanting to make sure that uh, girls, trans youth, gender nonconforming conforming youth, um, the most marginalized um, are always, always, always at the front and we always, always, always have like safety plans around safety aftercare plans and prep plans around like what we do if we decide to mobilize um empress do you have anything else to add there? no
2: you summed that up beautifully like that was gorgeous yeah it was. Uh, yeah like especially with um the fact that you have some orgs that are you know working for youth rather than with youth and i feel like CF does such a great job embodying one of the core values of youth power and making sure that it builds this collective liberation with and through youth. Um, and not, uh, you know, shadowing over our voices. Um, so like, yeah, I feel like, yes, yes. So <laughs> yes, Julie, you said that beautifully.
3: Okay, and bringing it back to, sorry, I, I feel like, uh, thank you at first for your input too. <laughs> bringing it back to the cops being removed from schools. Um, all, of, all of that being said with youth power and everything, um, with young people at the forefront organizing to remove costs from their schools it's it's just a also such a what am i trying to say like a um it it's such a like not bigger picture but it just like screams volumes because it's like wow uh young people are essentially taught that like quote you don't have a voice until you turn 18 go ahead and vote to make your voice heard but mm-hmm. for young people to use that power, regardless, regardless of what the state says you have, um, to remove costs from school, um, is actually the way historically um organizing works. Like we don't need the state to give us permission to to make change. And so since we yeah, fully align with um being like, you know, yeah. fuck the state. Let's we're gonna take it. We're gonna take our um we're gonna take what we need back. We're gonna take our freedom. We're gonna make our freedom. And um, organizing our young people to to unpack and understand what we've been indoctrinated to believe. Then that is a big component of um, why I think that Ciap is uniquely positioned to, you know, be be that org to do it. Well, we can we can be in coalition with other orgs, but we don't have to be that only org. <laughs>
1: Love you, Julie. Oh <laughs> yeah, that's so great. Y'all, y'all are incredible. Um yeah. In in DSA, we've been having a lot of conversations about like broadening our coalitions and um reaching out to other organizations, which is a huge part of why I wanted you guys on this podcast. Um because y'all are doing the work, and I'm so happy to see it. Um, Candace, as an educator, how do police and schools prevent you from fulfilling the work you want to do with students?
4: Marilyn, how much time you got?
1: (laughs) I have this scheduled for two hours, but we do have a few other questions, but...
4: I don't know, I was, know. Just, yeah, I was just <laughs> you know, go <laughs> for it. <laughs> I was just like, okay, uh, let me get serious. Police um, in schools prevent prevent things from flowing in a way that gets students and all of them to get themselves closer to where they want to be and who they want to be. Um, and same thing for teachers. Um, so the police in schools, they create this environment that makes, uh, that makes students feel as though by virtue of being at the school, by virtue of walking through those doors and seeing the police officer, or, um, depending on what school, what school you're at, walking through those metal detectors or taking your book bag off or knowing that you, you got the wrong book bag today because it's supposed to be clear. All of those things, it makes you feel, or makes students feel as though, uh, they are criminalized by virtue of existing in their school environment um and can y'all hear me because a couple of y'all scream froze just now okay cool, cool cool got you um yeah and and it translates into those students feeling as though they're going to be penalized at every waking moment of the day by every single quote-unquote authoritative figure in the building right so the trust is eroded again by just virtue of existing and they feel as though whatever move they make is going to be policed because again, it's not just the police doing the policing, um, but the teachers too. So it's just stacked on top of, um, everything is stacked on top of each other. Um, so the police as well as the policing of the students uh, remove the students from learning environments. So if I'm like, thinking as a teacher and just being selfish in the moment of like, how is this impacting what happens in our classroom or what happens um, when I'm trying to teach or whatever the case may be, it removes them from a learning environment. So they're unable to stay on track per se, they get behind quickly. So whether they're being removed and taken to ISS by the officer or removed indefinitely um, through suspension or through expulsion, they are being pushed back academically, but then at the same time, um, they're being deterred socially, emotionally as well. Um, So it it does, it impacts our classroom community. And something that I have here is that it places like a wedge uh, in the relationship of the student and the teacher, whether it's unintentional, like whether this teacher, whether I had anything to do with Uh, your negative interaction with that officer because of how, how, like Julie mentioned, the hierarchical um, structure is set up. Teachers and administrators and SROs or police officers are all in that same uh, realm of authoritative figures. So it's like, okay, um, I've been socialized to believe that this person is supposed to protect me or keep me safe, teach me about safety, counsel me and guide me in the right direction, be this you know, officer friendly. And then they come and the relationship is shifted, severed, uh, Im- shifted and severed immediately. So that translates into, okay, if that was a person that I was supposed to trust and they turned on me that quick and in the blink of an eye, what about this teacher that it, what that is my favorite teacher or, or that is a teacher that I trust that I confide in that I go to what about them w- w- when are they gonna flip so the shift happens not only you know physically and it's felt physically i'm I'm being taken out of a class or I'm being policed, I'm being surveilled, but it's also a mental and emotional shift too or psychological shift too where trust is eroded um and Just begin. Students begin to possibly question every single relationship they have with folks who are in that authoritative bubble in the school. Um, But luckily, (laughs) the type of teacher that I am, that I was, I didn't. I really tried to separate uh, or remove myself from that authoritative bubble, and a lot of times I got a lot of a lot of (laughs) flack or pushback. From administration or from other teachers, in the form of "Ooh, you being too nice to these kids," or "Ooh, why are you trying to be these kids' friend?" You better don't smile till after Thanksgiving. That's what someone told me my first year of teaching. What
1: is the problem with platforms like Eight Can't Wait, and why are proposals like Eight to Abolition better?
2: This eight can't wait. I feel like this is a prime, prime example of people thinking like reform and abolition is interchangeable terms because a lot of people are looking at this eight can't wait as like uh, the demands that... You know, abolitionists have been putting out. And I'm like, it is not. <laughs> because, first and foremost, like, the, if you look at them, they're like things that you thought should already have been in place. It's like literally the barest of minimum. Okay. Um, and it doesn't even, it's not going to actively address harm that is still faced by people of color. Like, it just, it's more rules for the system to break and find loopholes through. You know? So, I really don't, I don't. I mean, I see <laughs> where it's coming from for people, but I'm just like, we have to start thinking beyond, be beyond, you know, just um, thinking that, you know, these really short temporary fixes are gonna make the system like completely
4: be free from harm altogether. And I, I like that you use the word temporary just now, um, because, a lot of these are things that departments can say they're going to implement, or that uh, said they they several are already doing them. So something that um, I think I noted uh, was the fact that on the A can't Wait, I think one of the things um, highlighted was the banning of chokeholds or something along those lines. And chokeholds are banned in places like New York, but the chokehold was used in the murder of Eric Garner. So things like that. So they, and then also some of the um, statistics in that were actually off, but let me back up some. So it's very reformist. It doesn't focus on the actual systems. It focuses on like very, very incremental, um, like little piecemeal things like, here you go. Let's just give them that uh, to quell some of this this anger. and it doesn't get us closer to abolition whatsoever. First, why would you just want to re reduce like the amount of people who are being killed and not just eliminate 100%. Right. Make it make sense. So, right? So we just want we just want 72% of people to stop being murdered or do we want 100% of people to stop being murdered? Where do you get that number from? <laughs>
2: No, it's like, I feel like, I don't know if that's like something that's like been internalized or we just feel like we can't live in a, um, in a completely safe and uh, environment, free of harm and violence from the police at all. But I'm just like, I need folks to start realizing and recognizing like, yo, we, we can <laughs> if we get rid of them.
3: <laughs> yeah. And, um. So, I think Candace kind of touched on it. I like had a I had a quote um from the Harvard Civil Rights Civil Liberties Review that said, "Um in fact, the largest police departments in the country already have half or more of these policies in place, including New York City, Chicago, Los Angeles, and Philadelphia Police, and Chicago, where police are subject to seven of the eight policies so
2: Come through with the sources, Julie. Let them <laughs> so know. Let them know, know
3: what police on. in
4: Chicago <laughs> looks like. Right. Right. So they exactly. already have seven of the eight things that you are mentioning. What are you actually asking them to do? Exactly. They, they don't, don't have, have to police. change anything. Gonna, so police are going to police, are going to police, are going to police. Period. Period. And in case anybody needs to hear
2: it again, police are going to police, and police are going to police. <laughs> it's, I mean, you've got people in power that, don't mind abusing their power so it's just like why are we still allowing them to have this power like I don't I don't see how people aren't seeing this correlation (laughs)
3: um and I think the the second part of the question was like why are proposals like aid to abolition better um so I remember when aid to abolition dropped um and I so I didn't look too into Eight Can't Wait um, in the beginning, but I didn't really see like super super detailed accounts of like or descriptions of like what each policy was. So when Eight to Abolition dropped, I think that their platform was like so much more robust that um, even the design was to the to the T, like to match it, so that people would put, people would kind of like be confused to go to Eight to Abolition when people were trying to figure out like a can't wait stuff or you know whatever and I was like oh propaganda is brilliant but um when I went to their website they had fleshed out each of the eight points in so many details along with the pdf along with resources along it was just it was just robust and it was soup and and they even made a note they were like this isn't even like the entirety of abolition work. This is just this is a great starting point for where people are. So for with yep. with abolition just like becoming a new trendy buzzword coming around and people really like are, are hungry for more knowledge, it can't wait is like an amazing starting point for um for people to to grasp onto and also to put alongside it can't wait and explicitly see um you know you know like charts like t charts that kind of do a compare and contrast you can explicitly see a com- comparison contrast of um what abolition versus reform can look like and how reform can also be very harmful when it's um steeped in neoliber- liberalism
4: and you can tell that uh the creators behind it's abolition were they didn't just throw it together because the time is now but because they this is their lives work. Um, and then it was, I know AID can't wait was put together by some um, black people and other people of color, but the AIDS abolition, um, the, the folks who were, who put that together were, it was a very um, diverse group of people of color, um, people from different backgrounds and people who identify as abolitionists, police. Abolitionists and PIC abolitionists and so even the the difference in the people who put together put the platforms together like I'm all about name dropping. So I'm gonna go ahead and say I don't trust DeRay. I don't trust um, Performative activists who just do things because they feel as though They need to constantly be in the media cycle. They need to constantly have something out there um, and I know that it's abolition at and Micah um, and and Kay they all spoke about how you know it came together quickly but it they only put it together that quick because they needed um to push out that radical propaganda to counter the damage that it can't wait would have done yes so there's that too I
2: yeah because I feel like a lot of people are forgetting that you've got people that have been doing this work for years and years and years and so you know to like have like abolition just kind of like t- people you know trying to push this type of reform honestly like was that like kind of a slap in the face because it's like i'm seeing so many people like throwing out like the words ab- um, abolish but then well you know propose reform Um, ideas and so I'm just like I feel like people are forgetting that like you can't just this isn't a trend for us like because this is this is my life's work right here and I just feel like if you are going to be part of the fight you have to listen to the people that have been doing this for the longest of times because I'm I felt like for when it when everything was just first starting to happen like the main voices were just kind of being pushed away you know Oh, yes. Oh, oh, my gosh. I mean, abolish the police. And I'm like, yeah, we do. Right. <laughs> That's the whole reason why it's uh, uh, a abo- it's in the name. <laughs> like we are we want to get rid of them. And it's just like ugh, it's so frustrating sometimes. But then I have to, like, you know, recognize that I have to uh, meet folks where because I know a lot of people are just new to this political journey. So it's important to like have patience with people. But at the same time, it's like you gotta hold this accountable and call it out for what it is because like you can't say that abolish the police and then be like, well, we actually don't mean that. And I'm like, yeah, we do. Yes, we do.
3: Yeah, and that's why it can't wait is so harmful because the people who are like in their reformist almost abolition phase, uh, what those to those people, it can't wait confuses them. And then that's where the abolish right. all police, but not all police, they, you know. There's they're they're like
2: copaganda, it's on the same level yeah, as copaganda yeah. Right,
4: Seriously. that's a, that might be, that might be actually might be a terrible example, but that just came to my head. It's kind of like you're trying to make something appear better than it actually is. Like you're trying to make abolition appear more palatable, whatever. Like like coffee with cops is gonna make me want to go hug a cop. And no,
2: it's right? not. What are they no. supposed to make me do? Like completely erase all of the experiences that Black and Brown folks have had with cops? Like what are you what are you trying to do? <laughs>
1: <laughs> what are some of the non-reformist reforms you'd like to see the Charleston County Police Department, the City of Charleston Police Department, and other local police departments implement?
4: Um, I'll go. So some of the non-reformist reforms I would like to see come from uh, Critical Resistance's platform. I'll go ahead and, and um name them as well as a as a group that folks need to rally behind and do some some research on. Uh but putting a cap on overtime pay for police officers because on several occasions they uh use that to their advantage, knowing that they get paid overtime and it translates into more. Um, violent policing, so they just drive around at the end shift looking for somebody to arrest or to antagonize so that that time continues to just go on and on. Also, support reallocating funds from the police department to community health education and affordable housing. I believe it was Andrea Ritchie who was talking about um, the budget being in the people's hands at this moment, Andrea Ritchie is a, another person to dive into, I forgot the name of her book, uh, Invisible No More, I believe. She deals with uh, gender and policing a lot. But yeah, um, uh, reducing the size of the police force, reducing and removing their militaristic machinery and technology, and removing police from school districts and schools, specifically Charleston County School District. That's what I got, I'm gonna stop there.
3: Um Empress and I have been looking at the county budget too. So yes, yes to everything that Candace said and to the Charleston County budget. Um this is for Charleston County to make it more uh transparent about where money is going. Mm-hmm. Because um looking I mean it's it's really SROs, uh, school resource officers and the police department are real deep in the budget and they are everywhere.
2: Everywhere.
3: So, um, making it explicitly clear um, where this money is going and maybe this could go for a lot of other things in the budget, but right now we're focusing on the police um, uh, so that so that the general public can fully understand where the tax dollars are going um, or um, potentially just doing doing um yeah no i'll stop there i'll stop there (laughs)
2: yeah um so yes julie yes candace (laughs) um but yeah i'm kind of like back going off of what uh, julie said with making the budget um a lot more accessible to folks because i didn't even know that like they put it out publicly um and but even when you go and like read through it it's so confusing like the language is so so confusing almost as if they're like trying to hide what they're actually taking money from um and like i've seen a couple of folks on social media like suggesting maybe we give more money to the police so that they can you know better train their cops or something and i'm like but i don't think people really realize how much of their money already goes towards police and like even just folks that are having a problem with defunding the police I'm like you have to realize like the police has been draining money from like everywhere I mean they're taking it from our schools from our communities and I'm just like it's time to go ahead and switch the switch the flip and let's go ahead and take your money like we looked and and they already were thinking about for the next school year um getting more school resource officers and it's like even when we saw that they were getting more school resource officers, it's they also were talking about making more space in youth, um, youth detention facilities. So it was like they were making sure that they were going to arrest more kids, you know. So it's just like, I feel like, yeah, um, I really want our community to be able to see um, and handle the budget um, and uh, talk about where we want to reallocate these
4: funds and get rid of cops as well. Just just to remind y'all. You <laughs> said reallocate, not temporary reallocation. Cause I think that's something too. Like, yes. a oh, year or two years. No, 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 no. Take that money and leave it where you, where it is placed and right. allow that group or that, that, that section to have that money yearly, like to be in the budget continuously. Because again, Number drop for people who just need to hear the number. The police here in the budget, they have over $53 million. Oh, yeah. yeah. And
3: defund defunding, not like $2,000 to education. No, 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 no. Like 80 to 90%. <laughs> right. And 100% percent is ideal. But, you know, we're I'm talking so about- I'm so glad that you brought that
2: up with the temporary reallocating because what I don't want to happen is, like, we get a chunk of money and then, like, that's it. Like, no, this needs to be continued. I'm trying to drain them, drain the pockets, make the pockets hurt
1: <laughs> absolutely. um how important is transformative justice in the work towards abolition? What are some ways that you practice transformative justice in the different communities that you are a part of? and I know transformative justice is a huge topic all on its own. We could do an entire podcast series on it so
4: I want you to go first because that is who guides me in my journey towards oh my uh, <laughs> <laughs> no seriously do you know that though like you know that so I, I really want you to go
3: to you. <laughs> I love Candace, man um <laughs> so um well, the first thing I want to say is that, like, and we we all know, like, with abolition, transformative justice um, goes hand in hand with it. Um, because a lot of times when people think about abolition, um, they're like, okay, let's burn shit down. We're just all going to burn shit down. And it's like, yes, and we are going to build up new structures in their place. And what do these structures look like? And transformative justice... Um, Re-emphasizes the hard work behind abolition as well because of all and then it it doesn't only point the finger outward but it points the finger inwards about all the work that we have to do as well in order to like um build ourselves back up um because after after we burn down all the oppressive shit that's going on in our heads and our hearts what what is in their place and so you know we get to have these amazing um very tough conversations with us and our loved ones about like okay I'm in conflict right now how can I navigate this conflict without resorting to um disposability how can I resolve it without resorting to calling the police how can I resort to yeah. have, can I navigate without acting like the police um and it uh and that's that I feel like on a small scale that's how we start practicing um for when when abolition is is becoming large scale when things are actually being defund like completely defunded and being burnt down and we're building up this is when our time for building new structures happens where we've already been it's already in our muscle memory um so things like me and candace talking about someone who's harmed someone we care about okay is this screwed up if i say this (laughs) is this is this screwed up if i um message this person this or tell this person this um because I'm angry. And so giving each other process space to talk about all the things that we would like to say and moving with principle um, to make sure that we align with our politics and holding each other accountable um, for when we feel like we don't, but holding space for um, all the little nuances in between um, really makes me feel that um, you can't have one without the other, that's it. Um, And so, That was one way I practiced TJ with um, like my friends. And then within CAP, we integrated into um, the general just structure of how we work in our meetings. We um, implement um, like tools to normalize uh, naming concerns or naming, calling for help. Um, And also just shouting people out because sometimes whenever people get inundated with the day's work, we forget to celebrate. Um, So, with transformative justice is not only accountability and um, asking for help, but it's also joy. So um, how can we hold each other accountable for joy too um, in a world where everything feels so heavy? Um, And I'll stop there.
2: (laughs) That was gorgeous. Julie, you always be hitting stuff right on the nail. Um, Yeah, like, I just, Oh, man, that was so good. <laughs> um, something that I learned with my time in up was um, that justice does not equal vengeance. And I would also like to shout out that transformative justice is an indigenous practice. And um, so it's like you have these communities that already have transformative justice like implemented in the culture. Um, that seek to you know actively address conflict and harm not just from like the person that might have done it, but with the community collectively, because I feel like transformative justice really just points out the fact that when one person does harm, that affects everybody, you know, and that that it has to be a larger conversation with everyone that's involved um, and it just it it feels like such deliverance um, and just unity for me and the main places where I practice transformative justice has been within CEP. I mean, CEP has really, like, (laughs) helped to build up these practices for me, um, with just, like, you know, thinking about, okay, so we have something that's going on, we have this conflict, how do we want to address it, um, and having everyone present, um, in the conversation. So, I've been thinking about how I wanna do it in terms of like my um, bringing it back home with me. I know for school, I would always try to tell my friends like, let's have a transformative justice circle. You know, like you guys, I'm seeing a little bit of tension. How about we talk about it? (laughs) And Nobody wanted to do it. Nobody wanted to do it. Um, But just, I feel like a lot of people are also starting to unknowingly think about, implementing transformative justice in their life because I'm seeing so many conversations around what are some alternatives to calling the police and what are alternatives for me not policing other people. Um, and so I just, it's, I'm just, I'm excited to have it finally be normalized. Um, but yeah, I, I pretty much basically agree with everything Julie said. <laughs>
4: Uh, I agree with what both of y'all said. Like I'm over here, just like just still processing all of that because in all of our our conversations and interactions, I just feel like I learn each time, and I think that is what's aligned with transformative justice as well, giving folks the space to grow and to learn not each time, because we don't want uh, violence and harm to just be perpetuated and reproduced. So it's like, oh, not this time, but next time they'll learn. No, 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 not not like, and not in a sense like of, of that, but they know that the space is there for them to learn, for us to learn, for us to grow, because that's trans- transformative justice is, like transforming what justice looks like, because it doesn't look like, it doesn't look the same for everybody. Um, and it doesn't feel the same, and it doesn't sound the same. So I know a way from a, a an educational perspective or standpoint as a teacher, I was like just using that term frequently. Transformative justice—it it was happening in our classroom. So prioritizing um, students students needs, but also you know giving them the space to name why they did something and try to get to the root of why they did it instead of removing them immediately from the classroom or calling someone to remove them because that contributes to this, this punitive space of, of justice being punitive or just punishment or not just not getting to the root of it, but just removing um, the person who did the harm and potentially reproducing the harm by putting them in another environment where um, they're gonna be impacted negatively or they're just gonna continue that harm. Uh, So the space for that, and then the space for the person who was harmed in our classroom to talk about what they want to see or what, um, what justice looks and feels like for them. Because in many cases, there have been times, I don't know which scenario it was, Julie, but the two, the scenarios we, we looked at the case studies where there was like, there were groups of girls that got into a fight. Uh, I don't know if it was what we looked at or something that I read. Anyways, two girls got into a fight, but they were friends um, and got suspended or got taken out of school, but they were still friends. So they didn't want harm to be done to their friend based on the fight or based on um, the harm that they um enacted on one another, they didn't want their friend harm, but they wanted to get to the bottom of it. They wanted to kind of talk it out, and in many cases that's what that's what needs to to happen so yeah, transformative justice moves us much closer to a society where we don't need to call in violent groups of people to handle things for us, but like in said, and I'm so glad she mentioned it that we've been doing it all along, Um, like indigenous folks, black folks, brown folks, have been doing it all along because for a very long time, we've known that the police are not to be trusted. So we're not ones to just call the police immediately. Now there are um, several communities that do because that's how we've been socialized, but that's what we know, but in most cases, growing up if some if your neighbor did something and it got on your nerves or you didn't like it you went to that person you told them um for small things and for large things you don't you didn't want to get the police involved but yeah I I I I'll stop there and just say it's something that communities of color have been doing and we need to continue doing it
3: Exactly. Because yes. like the police the police haven't existed. Because like indigeneity has existed way longer than the police have. So right there, there's been a time where transformative justice was the was the thing that people to do. And um yeah, I'm still sitting with everything Candace and Empress just said too. And I really think that um after Candace named like how quick we are to punitive um punitive solutions to, you know, the wide range of Conflicts that might happen, punitive solutions and po- thinking that police are the one size fit all solution to everything kind of um it, it it's important to to learn and really embody transformative justice to fully understand abolition too because of it transformative justice's nature of being a long 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 term process. It can be so long and then abolition is also a long term process to where when we are so um used to things being turned over quick we feel like there there's often a like society is often looking at um movement like not, there's no there's no movement happening but it's deep and it's slow and it's intentional and that's how um that's directly challenging capitalism who you know we have to where we have to move so fast that we can't even think about Um, all the nuances and layers and prioritizing survivor needs, et cetera, et cetera, like prioritizing the needs of people who have been harmed um, because we're so, we're moving so fast. And so transformative justice is like that deep, deep breath that we all need to take in order to figure out what's the next thing we need to burn down.
2: Mm -hmm. I also wanted to shout out how I'm so glad Candace brought up um, how normalized like disposability is within schools um, because it's like, quite frankly, it almost is encouraged um, to some teachers yep. that, you know, okay, you don't have time to address conflict in the classroom. Just go right ahead, phone the front office, get the SRO and the principal. And that's that. And like coming from a place where like, I have been a part of like, you know, being suspended and, just felt like thrown out, I I'm, I think about it and I'm like, the situation was never actually addressed. You know, I still felt the same feelings I had that caused me to get suspended. And me and the student, we never fully resolved it out. And we actually had to like do it ourselves. And I feel like a lot of times in schools, they leave it up to the students. Which is great, but it's like I, it would have really been helpful if I had some support behind that, because like I was only in the, like the fifth grade, and so like again, I just feel like transformative justice is unknowingly happening, and you see it happening in in our youth and you see it happening at home, and I'm just like I'm ready for it to become something that everyone does everyone intentionally practices um and turns to for conflict so beautiful what Julie and Candace said beautiful beautiful beautiful
1: yeah, yeah all all of that was so beautiful and inspiring um, with SROs gone what does a safe school environment look like to you without police and prisons what does a safe world look like to you
2: say a school that didn't have SROs, I feel like I would just be comfortable with taking up more space when it comes to me being who I am. Because whenever I walk into a school or whenever I walk past an SRO, I instantly feel myself just shut down. I feel like I'm not wanted. I feel like I'm not, uh, I'm just simply there just to come in Learn how to be a worker and leave. And I just feel like with police gone, black students will finally be able to you know walk down the hallway and sing our songs, you know, Because it's like even just instances where we would just be having a great time in the cafeteria and the instant that the sRO um, would walk in or stand there and look at us or give us glaring looks. It's just like the energy and that weird power dynamic was always off. And a lot of times, the school would like encourage us to have relationships with police officers and our school resource officers. But it's just like, it's at the end of the day, that's still a police. Like at the end of the day, even from when I was in elementary school and I had developed what I thought to be this trusting relationship with one of my school resource officers, when I found myself in trouble, um, and I say that in quotation marks, I forgot people can't see, that police officer looked at me as if I was, you know, some type of awful criminal, as if I had, like, he didn't, because they don't see you for who you are. Um, Because when somebody, when a police officer stops you, they're they're doing it to arrest you, babe. And it's just like, I feel like when we don't have police in our schools, um, it just, it will feel a lot more safer for black and um, brown students to feel free in their blackness and i also feel like um there'll be so much more support around mental health and the well-being of students and having that be completely prioritized um because you know with them going we have these funds that we can put into getting more school psychiatrists like Charleston school district literally only has one psychiatrist that goes through all of these schools and for what you know like why uh you have um you have so many so many students that need um may, like might need immediate help or um some type of resource to go to and it's just like it just feels completely brushed off um and it just i just yeah i feel like with cops gone um i will actually feel like i'm prioritized uh, me, myself, and I, and so I got to tell you. Okay. <laughs> um, but I feel like oh. <laughs> um, that will be prioritized, and uh, my identities will be welcomed and just needed and truly protected. And I'll be able to go down the hallways and sing my songs with my friends without thinking I'm about to get arrested for a school disturbance. So that's, okay. and that's a
4: real thing, y'all. That is a real thing. I have seen it happen. Disturbance disturbance schools law. Mm-hmm. Very very broad. Use anything. Um have you that's just that's absolutely, absolutely right, Empress. And I'm so glad you mentioned like just being able to be yourself at all times without them there. Because I don't think a lot of people factor that into these calls for removing police. is not just because they've beaten up on people, but it's the psychological impacts that they have on oppressed groups. But for me, uh, it looks like a, a school environment without police officers, without cops, looks like an environment that is based more in care, more in liberation, and more in justice, an environment where those Uh, hierarchies and those authoritative bubbles are burst uh, and folks are more so in a horizontal um, aligned horizontally not necessarily vertically where this is not this hierarchy of who has the power who has the control of course the hierarchy is going to be there in regards to like the principal's administration teachers whatever the case may be but hopefully that is torn down too soon Um, but a grand space for every student to just be their full selves. Like in per se, it looks like support that's proactive, but also responsive and adaptive to the needs of the several different types of students. Because with the, and I don't even wanna, do I want to say shortage, with a limited amount uh, of counselors, student concern specialists, uh, mental health uh, counselors, and school psychologists, they can't necessarily be very, very adaptive, very, very specific when it comes to treating or interacting with certain students. They have to kind of operate within this almost one size fits all because it's like, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, I got to go to the next school. And as a teacher, I sat through several of those processes where a student really needed to see the mental health counselor but could not for like a week or two weeks, two and a half, three weeks, because the schedule was so booked up or because the rotation was that, that mental health uh, practitioner could not be at our school, but on a specific day. So without SROs, we would have more more counselors who are able to really take a more thoughtful approach. Um, And then also, to me, a safe school environment without SROs is one that doesn't uh, enact discipline rooted in white supremacy and anti-blackness, because once you remove the SRO, once you remove that uh, authority figure, then teachers, administrators have to move a bit differently. They have to adjust their approach. They have to think about, okay, I can't, call a police, so what can I do now? So it helps to uh have have the practitioners in the classroom be a bit more thoughtful as well. They're forced to be. Um, and without SROs, it's it's an environment that I would hope will become more culturally responsive, anti-racist, and teachers will implement more um abolition-based curriculums. And Within the classrooms, again, like eradicating those those vertical hierarchies in regards to power and control. Um, yeah, that's that's what a a school without police looks like, feels like to me.
3: Yeah, I wanna I wanna uplift that like you naming that is so important that after the SRO is gone, there's still more work to do because removing the SRO is not the end goal. The end goal is to be fully liberatory in a classroom Absolutely. Um, where, like Candace said, culture resp- responsive, anti-racist, abolitionist, all that. And so safe where people, where students can be full and fully themselves and whole, like Empress said. Um, so for me, um, I thought a lot about um, my my public schooling, um, when I was, uh, in elementary school. And I remember going to a counselor that, um, with, with an issue that, um, that I could, where I couldn't focus in class because of something that happened at home. And since our counselors are so predisposed to only guiding us to get to college, um, without having, um, without having the training to, care for students, um, mental health care for students culturally responsibly. Like also, I think she treated me like a white student would because like, I'm, I was like the first kid to go to school in my family. I couldn't talk to anybody else about it. Like, um, about struggling in school. I couldn't bring that home. And she basically like wrote me off and was like, oh, it's, it's no big deal. Um, and sent me back to my classroom. And I was just sad. She sent me back with like a like a like a cute little cotton ball thing, like a toy would help me out, but whatever. So to me, a safe environment would have a counselor that will actually support a student's emotional needs, understand them, and would also be trained to um to to respond to to cult, like you know, culturally responsive. That's what Candace said. And um if that if that counselor is not equipped to like fully empathize with the identities of that student then there would be other counselors available in order to do so. So it's not all on one person either. I remember being in high school and um, a friend of mine was talking to about a school psychologist. I didn't even know we had a psychologist. She only knew because that was her aunt. (laughs) And so after that, I mean, at that point, I didn't even know what a psychologist was for. And I didn't think to even try to go to that person because, you know, the school didn't see think it was that important to make sure that that resource was known um and accessible so of course we didn't try to access access them um um, so we would have psychologists we would have schools that like are fully transparent about the resources that students have like they would I feel like a safe environment would be like a a school would continuously throughout the year at assess assess the needs of students and assess where they are emotionally how they feel about school in general like like, um, besides like a grade, besides like, oh, how's your attendance rate, besides all the like numbers, statistics stuff, um, so that they could accurately, um, you know, uh, provide resources to students who may need them, or even just like practice, um, practice normalizing that so there's less shame for um, students growing up who need those resources to ask for help when they're older. Um and uh last thing is that uh not last thing but this is another thing um I remember in elementary school we had these um what they called them safety patrol and so we wore these like um sashes and basically like wanted us to be all we did was like open doors yeah open doors for car riders but the way that they um like trained us was to like put us in the mindset of like we are as, like, important and powerful as a cop. Like, we, we like, keep people safe like a cop. And so, you know, we can still have kids open the doors during car riders, make them feel important. Let's not, let's not uh, parallel them to cops. We don't have that. For real. In the, with the, c- in the environment that's safe. <laughs> I completely
2: forgot that that was a thing. Like, there literally, they literally used to be, like, children, like, walking through the hallways being like, you cannot run like that. Yes. Let's stop the running, you know. Like Kids even with children. children, when they gave them like this idea that like they were like mini cops, you saw them abusing this type of power. Like it's just like mm-hmm. uh, yes, I forgot that even existed. I completely forgot. They, they never had patrols,
4: patrols <laughs> in my elementary school patrols and hallway patrols. Y'all, oh, my, yeah. my brother was because I remember he had like the orange sash, <laughs> and I used to think it was so lame. Like, are you serious right now? This is what you
3: wanna do with your life. <laughs> yeah, and and I feel like that, see, that's the the programming that they put in our heads to where we get older. It's it's like, oh, there's a the cop in our head. They, they, they've been growing there since we were in school, like very young in school. So yep. um instead of instead of that, let's have students and school staff get a better understanding of how to navigate conflict and how to guide healthy conflict to become generative and transformative, you know? Instead of, mm. you know, having having instead of being like, okay, it looks like the way for us to dismantle a hierarchical standpoint is to make students police each other. No, 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 <laughs> no. No, 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 no. No police at all.
2: I also feel like um, with getting rid of cops and just going back to like having this, I feel like we'll have well,
5: we'll have so much
2: money. <laughs> so much more free money. Like we can invest more in like in normalizing like uh liberation through the arts and like the arts programs and having more after school programs for folks. Like it's just a lot of times that's forgot about. So yeah, you know, I'm a cedar major. <laughs> I would love for me to not have to go home and make my own costumes as amazing as that is. um, If we could take some of that budget, uh, or not even some, all the budget from cops and put that into the arts, that'd be great. (laughs) Um, Because I know for a lot of folks, that's another way um, that they can move through some sort of conflict, so
5: yeah.
3: Yeah, and it, oh, speaking of budget, Empress, I would love to see teachers get paid definitely what they're worth and more because why should teachers be buying uh school supplies for their students every year out of their pockets
5: uh, what? On
3: it, Drew. And, Drew, on it. and so 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 just take that money funnel it to the teachers because also they're like especially right now hazard pay since you know they're being forced to be in classrooms And it's just it's just ridiculous how much SROs are getting paid compared to teachers who are pretty much like having the sole responsibility of keeping like of like educating students and being such a foundational part of young people's lives where SROs are there to deteriorate that education and being paid to do that while teachers are being paid crumbs and also potentially having to find extra jobs or side gigs and then also, they need to be paid during the summer. Like just pay in general um, is being wasted on SROs when we have people actually doing the work.
2: Exactly. My teacher shouldn't have to buy us glue, you know, like, and I, my teachers always made such a point to be like, well, um, this is, uh, we have limited resources because this came out of my pocket. And I always thought that was so weird. I was like, what? I'm like, why do you have to buy colored paper? <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Let's pay our teachers, please.
4: Just for clarification purposes, because I don't want people to like be coming at DSA like, yo, they said that was, that's inaccurate. So teachers do get paid over the summer. Um, oh, okay. I'm not sure if that's like uh, widespread across the nation, but I do know in South Carolina, teachers do get paid over the summer. But it still ain't enough.
1: No, it's not enough. Um, our last question is, um. Are there any specific questions or concerns people tend to have about abolition that you'd like to address? I mean, I think y'all covered it a lot already.
3: Um, something that I wanted to address, I guess I'm very, I'm just seeing a lot of the, the trendy stuff on social media right now happening, and I really, really, really want folks to understand what they mean when they say, Abolish the cops because that also means abolish ICE because that also means abolish the military because folks are like, Yeah, abolish the police, ACAB, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, Okay, okay, cool. And then they're like, Supporting the military or supporting or, you know, or, or, you know, just using all of these things interchangeably but not really understanding the the symbiosis with all of these phrases. Um, yes, abolishing policing in all forms. Um, I think that. It's important for uh for folks to think about policing uh and how it exists outside of the police department too.
4: Absolutely. And uh something that I hear the great Maryam Kappa, as well as Derek addresses it too. Derrica Brunel, she talks about it too, but uh the fact that people think that abolitionists and BSC abolitionists and police abolitionists, whatever the case may be, however you identify, that we are not concerned with eliminating harm or aren't concerned with sexual violence, gender-based violence, or things of that nature, and that we're not thinking about those things or that we're not thinking about... violent offenders or whatever the, the, the case may be. And I want people to know that we are, <laughs> and that many of us, whenever we are being um, radicalized through an abolitionist lens, like that's one of the first things that we talk about or, or that our our mentors or our guides or our comrades talk about that that's one of the main goals, like, you know, eliminating harm um, and addressing harm, and we're not disregarding it, we're not pushing it to the side, we're we're not trying to suppress the voices of of folks who have experienced harm and are experiencing harm, but we're actually censoring them in our approaches where through things like restorative, transformative justice, really trying to get to the root. And then also through the shifting of like funds to what the community really needs is us trying to get to the root of what's creating the conditions for these harms to occur. So that is something that I feel is still people are concerned about and for good reason. Their their concerns are very valid, but I want them to know that that's something that we think about often and that many if not all <laughs> abolitionists or humans in general have Dealt with harm, have experienced harm um, in minor forms or and extreme forms. So many abolitionists are sexual uh, are 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 survivors of sexual assault or gender based violence, and that's what drives their work or our work. So that's something I wanted to lift up.
2: Yes, Candice, I I always thought about that. Like when people would say, "Well." What about police when we need to address when this happens? And a lot of times it left me thinking, why is it that they felt as though in order to address harm, you had to bring in more harm, you know? So it's like, just thinking about it now, it's like the situation and the root of the cause never, ever is addressed at all. Um, And I feel like, you know, you see a lot of stuff with like, what about the murderers? And this that and the third and what about people stealing and it's like again you have to look at the root of why we have conditions allowing this type of violence you know like stealing most people are doing that to obtain resources because they they don't have the funds to obtain it okay so let's put some more resources into these communities where people don't feel the need to have to steal in order to get something that they need you know or like even with that like our murderers, which I looked at a statistical report and it's like, I, I can't even remember the number, but like the thing where it's like serial killers and stuff um, is a very small percentage. But even for that percentage, it's like a lot of those are the same folks that didn't have any type of community care in their youth. And so for us saying that we want to eradicate harm by centering, you know, community liberation and having, um, us uh being there for one another in unity it's like a lot of that beautiful beautiful um community care will directly impact how people you know go through their day-to-day lives so yeah that's a lot I I see that all the time every time my friends talk to me about it
4: Oh, and uh, one thing, super, super, super super quick. Something that was mentioned the other day uh, in relation to this was the fact that why are police in the state being left out of conversations in regards to who's enacting this violence, the sexual violence. So a statistic that I saw the other day was um, every five days a police officer is caught in the act of of sexual violence or assaulting someone. and oh, I forgot—I forget the the other statistic. But it's like the the um, the second greatest thing that um, police officers are are like caught or or charged with doing or something of that nature is enacting sexual violence on folks. So we we have to always include that in the conversation too. Like police are also. Uh, carrying out sexual violence. And it's hard to catch police. So you catching them every five days? Imagine the ones you're not catching.
1: All right. Um, Yeah. Um, One last question. Sorry, I got to scroll up. How can people listening to this podcast support your work towards abolition what are local concrete steps people can take to
4: support abolition? They can help us get these cops out of schools, for one. Um, so something very simple that they can do that was mentioned earlier is signing that peti- the petition on CEF's page. And then also uh, we will be going to city council, county council and the school board. So looking out for those dates and showing up through uh, public comments whether they they sign up to speak um, like through digital means where you send the comment or whether they want to speak verbally. So for them to be prepared for that and then also um, something that can be done is figuring out who has loved ones who are in prison or who has comrades who are in prison because more often than not, someone who you are very close with knows someone who is in prison, and if not you yourself, and ask them how or if they will be comfortable with you uh, helping to support that person who's in prison. Because we can't be doing all of this fighting out here and and awaiting a revolution out here and disregarding the voices and the needs of those who are in prison. Not saying that folks are not the voices, they are, but I'm just saying that that's something that we have to think about too. So figuring out how we can support those who are in prison um, and not just our nonviolent offenders, right? So, how we can support um, those in prison? How we, could, how uh, like who's doing the work? So, I know I was helping our comrades in prison, and I still am with like protect SE prisoners uh, to send them. Uh, things that they need in regards to like hygiene and and sanitary, for sanitary purposes. But in certain institutions, there are like holds on donations right now because of like COVID-19 restrictions or because of like different lockdowns that are there. But seeing what they need. And then also without revealing incriminating information, just know that even when there are things things happening, like lockdowns happening, that there are still several ways that you can send direct aid to folks in prison uh, without having to go through the state, the state's means. So like without having to go through like JPay or Connect Network, even though, I mean, go through that if you need to, but there are other ways. Uh, and if anybody wants to talk to me, um, talk with me offline about that, on social media or something like that, you can. Um, and what else? What else? You educate themselves. Um, that's that's really important. So if if nothing else, if you have if you you can't get in contact with people in prison, if you can't um, interact with the organization as much as you want to because of work or what or whatever the case is, educate yourself. Uh, there's so many resources floating around on social media, so many articles that are being published where if you do Google abolition or, or PIC abolition, there are going to be um, very thoughtful pieces that you can read that will help guide you. Uh, because we want we want folks to really embody this and hold on to the to <laughs> for that 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 principle struggle, you um and uh take take their time so those those are a few things and i hope i hope i was clear but yeah it's a few ways yeah
3: those resources are so important and i was also thinking about like reading groups and i was thinking about tinka gatson who just formed one for denmark bc's garden but um, it doesn't have to be like somebody who has a big platform to form a reading group. It can literally be like you and your friends or you and some of your family. Um, and I think especially with some of the content, even if it's like new or dense, it for me, um, coming into abolition work was really tough to understand like the language around it um, without having other people around me. So when I was able to debrief and unpack and ask questions with other people, um, to try to better understand what it is, um, that abolition was all about. That was when I was able to come into my own full understanding. Um, and then also, um, like doing just like practice scenarios together, like, okay, well, what if this happens? Um, what, what will we do? Like, like a practice scenario where, where the police, like generally would be called how can we how can we um how can we navigate this on our own and when Candace and i Candace, Candace, Candace and i did a, a virtual town hall for the Avery research center where we we didn't get to it in the in the town hall but we had two scenarios in the school about like um i can't remember what they were but um we can definitely link those questions um in the show notes um or the scenarios in the show notes Um, but trying to get people to, you know, trying to get our brains to practice thinking about, um, what does it look like for us to, to take conflict into our own hands and actually think through what are our, what are our current beliefs about conflict and what are like our embodied beliefs currently and what where do we want to be? Um, and I think that practice really reveals that, uh, and debrief, debrief after practicing is always really important to kind of reflect on, reflect on what happened.
4: Oh, one of the scenarios was the noise complaint. The neighbor, <laughs> yeah. So, like, what what could you do besides calling the police? Because a lot of folks who live in apartment complexes or even in dorms, noise complaints are a big a big part of why police get called. So, what can you do besides doing that?
2: Julian Candace, yeah, that was great. <laughs> I really have nothing to add after that.
4: <laughs> oh, and support your community. Like a lot of people are throwing around the term mutual aid and things of that nature, but again, that's rooted in 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 the traditions of uh, of p- different people of color, like the stuff that we we've been doing. But that is something that will support this move towards abolition because it is is based in like self-determination and sustaining our communities, ourselves, and that that is aligned with us not having to always call outsiders for help. So sustaining your community and and seeing what people need and giving what you can, but also being willing to, to ask, for what you need to because once you begin to ask, then someone else is going to be more comfortable asking too. Um, so that's, that's a another thing because with the Black Panthers, and something that they, they were sent to was survival pending revolution. So, how are we going to meet the material needs of people? Because can't nobody fight on an empty stomach.
1: I love that answer, that's so good. Um, I want to remind everyone listening. Even if you don't have money to support prisoners, you can write them letters. Um, Blackandpink.org is an abolitionist um, queer organization that will connect you with prisoners. You can write letters, too. Yeah, and I guess that's it for the podcast. Um, Thank you so much. This was incredible. I'm so glad y'all shared your knowledge with us.
4: Thank y'all for giving Thank us. You for Thank you for having us. Uh, this was so oh, good. Oh,
2: thanks, Allison. <laughs> this most definitely was something I never thought I'd do. So. <laughs> but you did it. And you were absolutely amazing, sis. <laughs> Stop, you know I'm a Virgo. I don't know how to receive compliments. <laughs> Where well, you're going to today. <laughs> thank you, Marilyn. Thank you. Yes, Bart, thank, you thank you, thank you.
4: We appreciate y'all for real and the work that DSA is doing here too. Right. The movement, the struggle and push us closer to abolition of the police, of prisons and of the United States of America. <laughs> right, right. <laughs>
2: Beautiful
1: i'm so glad to be building a new world with y'all and i hope everyone listening to this wants to join us in building that world yes please i hope so too yeah so good night y'all thank you
4: bye Bye. see y'all hold it down